What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. Got a fun episode coming at you. Uh, I have a long interview with Jake from Tasting Anarchy. The second half of that episode is one of the funnest segments I ever did. Uh, We're talking about turning this thing into a full-scale cult, getting some farmable land, rallying the troops together, and being able to hunker down in a location where, you know, we could all fend for ourselves and not have to rely on the government actually having a game plan for when things went to shit. Um, In the first half, we just kind of talked about uh, him being a Quaker and uh, wine, not really my favorite thing in the world, but we we got into wine for a whole chunk, and then we talked about how we're going to turn this thing into a full-scale cult. Uh, Before I get into that interview with Jake from Tasting Anarchy, a couple stories I do want to highlight because, uh, I don't know, I haven't spoken to you guys for a little while. I thought we could sit down, we could relax, discuss some of the things that have happened. All right, first is our favorite faker fucked up in an interview. Here's the audio. I don't want to spend my time doing things that I don't think are valuable enough to me personally. Like what? Well, I don't like what I do professionally, I've decided. Um, I like doing this show. I like talking to you guys. But I don't value indulging irrationality, hyperpartisanship. I don't think it's worth my time. And I don't want some jackass, loser, fat tire biker um, to be able to pull over uh, and get in my face and in my space and talk bullshit to me. I don't want to hear it. And just like you would, right? You, you're not going to tolerate that, right? Some cat just basically pulls up in the driveway next to yours and starts getting in your face about stuff. How, how's that going to go? How's that going to go, right? That matters to me more than making millions of dollars a year. That matters to me more. Why? Because I've saved my money. And here's what I'm thinking happened. That guy, firstly, two things. The first thing is, um, I think they pushed him too far when they forced him to go home and pretend like he had the coronavirus. He was all for working for a propaganda network. He was all for it. He's pretty good at it. He'll get on the news every night. He'll tell you things that aren't true. He'll go full ham on why we need to all hate Trump. He'll go full ham on Russia collusions that never happened. But when he has to actually go home and act and get on air every day and pretend like he was sick the night before but looks fine right now, they pushed it a little bit too far. That's one. Two is you really get the mafia feeling for who these people are because, you know, you you could talk shit to me. all. I'll just take it because I don't have that guy's big body or dad or relatives that will kill people. So if you talk shit to me, I'll just take it. And guess what? If you pay me a lot of money to be in a position where people want to talk shit to me because I'm on the news every night and that's kind of the way it goes. You're a divisive individual and some people are going to look at you and see through the fact that you're a propagandist, which is really what it's all about. The guy knows exactly who he is and what he does. And so he kind of takes it personally because he doesn't doesn't like having to be called out on it. So from here on, you ever see the Cuomo characters call them out on being fucking propagandists because it gets to them. How great is that? That despite all the money and wealth and resources,
resources that are handed to them just because they're good at being jobs, which is creating propaganda, you call them out on that and it fucking infuriates them. So ruin that guy's day. You ever see him in New York City? Take it upon yourself to be like, hey man, I watch CNN every night. I just want to let you know, I think you're one of the best at making propaganda. So, you know, respect for you and what you do. I like a good professional. I like a guy who's good at his job and you're killing it. Um, Next is you got a lot of this uh, Biden news coming out. People are going after him. There's more reports about, uh, you know, sexual assault. And the one that came out was uh, this lady that worked for him said that she was forced against a wall and he put hands up the shirt and skirt. I guess one hand up the shirt, one hand up the skirt. You know, she didn't really give all the dirty details. Um, but I just thought, found this amusing instead of Biden making a statement, getting up there and going, that lady's full of malarkey that never happened. So the campaign made a statement on his behalf and the statement that the campaign made on his behalf was this absolutely did not happen. And I think the reason why that statement came from the campaign is because they really couldn't risk Biden messing up that one. You know, he gets up there and he goes, that absolutely happened. She knows me. I mean, it didn't happen. No one's ever said that it happened. I mean, there's the article where people said that it happened, but I didn't do it because they know me. And after all, she's an adult woman. I'm into kids. Everyone knows I'm into kids. Okay. I, I mean, that's not what I meant. Um, uh, uh, come <laughs> Here's the other best part was this is what's clear that actually did happen um, was that apparently after she rejected him, she said to him, Come on, man, which I don't think that's ever helped a dude get laid in the history of getting laid. Like, I bet that works for dudes who are into dudes. We're like, come on, man, we've been hanging all night. You're like, well, what's up, dude? You're not going to, like, suck my dick or, like, whatever? You know, I thought we were, like, chill and bros and dudes. Um, so, you know, God bless the fact that Obama just gave Biden his endorsement. Everyone's given Biden his endorsement, and uh, I think they're all going to look like idiots soon enough, and hopefully coronavirus ends, if for nothing else, that we can actually get Biden back on television campaigning and making blunders, because that's that's what he's best at. Um, next thing I wanted to highlight is uh, you guys should all check out this blog. It's called Wall Street on Parade, and um, I think they're the best of what I've seen so far. If you guys got other news sources, hit me up Rob's newsroom at gmail.com. Uh, but of the news sources I've seen that are really breaking down some of the bullshit of the bailouts that are going on. Uh, these guys have great coverage. I I'm sending the guy emails. I'm trying to get him on the show, hit him up, tell him he should come on, run your mouth, get him, get on him on Twitter. It's him and his wife or wife, girlfriend. I don't know. It's two people run the website, but, uh, I've been going after them. I'd love to have them on the show. Just want to highlight a couple little things that I've seen there recently, um, which I think are very interesting and worth knowing in regards to the bailouts. Um, so the first is, BlackRock, they were saying, was going to like handle some um, some of the aspects of finances going from the Fed. I don't remember the specifics of it, but they were like, hey, listen, BlackRock, the maximum amount of money that they're going to make is $7 million, and they make like billions of dollars a year, so the $7 million, like, don't think we've given BlackRock a whole bunch of power. But then here's what ended up happening. Um, the Fed has intervened in high-yield loans. High-yield loans are just junk bonds. That's just the sales term for junk bonds. They don't want to call them junk bonds, so they're high-yield because risk-first-reward. You put more risk on the table, they got to pay you more. High-yield loans. Fancy term for, hey, here's a piece of shit that might not do well. So the Fed is actually stepping in, and they're bailing out everybody who invested heavily in high-yield loans and that they're basically, I think they're taking the debts off 
either off those balance sheets or they're saying that, I guess, if there's a default that they're going to step in and uh, pay people back on it. Now, here's what's crazy about that. Firstly, you're bailing out some of the biggest players on Wall Street, including BlackRock, who happens to be the people that package all these things together. But no, no, they're only making $7 million by working with the Fed. Don't worry about these BlackRock characters. Uh, The other thing is that part of all of investing is in price discovery, trying to figure out, hey, do I have an advantage if I invest here instead of somewhere else? And one of the biggest parts of price discovery is evaluating risk versus reward. Now, if the Fed steps in and they say, hey, the most risky of assets that people have been investing in, we're going to backstop it. We're going to make sure that you don't have any losses. Well, now all of a sudden, those loans have as much risk as a government loan. I mean, lending to the government. Now, government securities traditionally pay the lowest interest rates. Why? Because they're the least risky. It's a very safe asset. And since it's a safe asset, they don't have to give you a high rate of return. Whereas when it comes to junk yields, since they're risky as fuck, they got to offer you a lot of money in order for you to want to invest in them. But then if the Fed steps in and goes, hey, those junk yields that you guys would have taken a big loss on because you fucked up and you shouldn't invest in them, so we're going to backstop it. Well, now all of a sudden you've eroded all of the workings of what would be a free market where you can make bad investments, you can take the risky propositions, and guess what? If they go to shit, they're no different than the safe propositions. Um, the point is, you and I, if we sit down, if we sit down at this table, if we want to invest, we're just suckers. That's what it is. It's like being at a poker table with not just more experienced players, but people that get to look at your cards. You ever seen the movie Lock, Stock, and Barrel? That's a great movie. That was probably the best Guy Ritchie film. I saw Snatch first, so I thought Snatch was the shit. But then later, you see Lock, Stock, and Barrel. If you've never seen it, go see it. Some of the new Guy Ritchie films, I haven't even. I haven't seen the newest one. It looked like it could have been cool. It was more in his old style, and then. He made a bunch that I had no interest in. Um, But anyways, I don't know why I got into that. Yeah, because one of the poker guys cheats. So that's what you're at. You're at a table with poker players that can cheat. They get to change the rules of the game at will. will. They're the bigger players of the Sharks. And in my opinion, you can't really beat them. Um, So that was one little interesting piece from Wall Street on Parade. Now, here are some other pieces of information that you guys should just keep in mind as you see more and more news stories about the bailouts and what we've done here. So the first is the beginning of um, the Fed kind of starting to intervene in the markets and helping out the big banks was their intervention in the repo market. That goes back all the way to September 18th. So if you look at coronavirus, you got to realize that they were already basically engaging in quantitative easing without calling it that. And they were also basically engaging in a bank bailout without calling it that. They were just saying, hey, we're kind of helping the financial plumbing over here and we're getting involved in the repo market. Um, But I think by the time, check my numbers here, but I think by the time that this whole thing started coming into action, there was probably already the equivalent of about a $6 trillion bailout um, through the repo market. So the idea that like... um, we were headed for a bank bailout regardless of this whole coronavirus thing, whether or not that they uh, manipulated how bad it was for cover. I can't tell you, but I can tell you that there's been problems in the repo market all the way back to September when the Fed was intervening and helping out the big banks. And obviously that's long before we ever heard about a coronavirus thing. 
Now, who's getting the most money in this? Here's another little piece of an article I want to highlight for you. So this is September 17, 2019. Um, so that makes it $13.54 trillion for the Wall Street versus possibly $1.7 trillion for Main Street if it's not siphoned off by loopholes in the new law. Um, so that's just highlighting that while they're talking, hey, you're getting your $1,200 a month. Look, the government's helping out Main Street here. And I even saw there was this was an opposition to a article in Bloomberg, which was saying, hey, in this case, the people on Main Street are getting a bailout the same as the people on Wall Street. Bullshit. They're getting $13.54 trillion versus our $1.7 trillion. And as pointed out by the authors here, chances are no one's actually getting that $1.7 trillion. And then here's just the last piece of information that I want to highlight um, from pieces that I've read recently over at Wall Street on Parade. Um, the nationalization of bad debts will work like this. The U.S. Treasury will hand 40, $454 billion of taxpayers' money to the Federal Reserve. The Fed will in turn hand the bulk of this money to the New York Fed. The New York Fed will then create special purpose vehicles, SPVs, using the $454 billion as, lo- as loss-absorbing capital, equity, to leverage its purchase of bad debts to port 454 Point five four trillion. If debt markets keep sinking, the New York Fed needs to buy up more bad debts from the global banks and multinational corporations. Congress and the U.S. Treasury will put the U.S. into ever deeper debt to oblige our multinational overlords. Before the last financial crisis, U.S. national debt stood at eleven trillion. It has more than doubled in a dozen years to the current twenty-four trillion. Much of that growth resulted from the fiscal stimulus measures to shore up the U.S. economy and multinational banks on Wall Street destroyed in two thousand and eight. All right, that's the end of that. I will be highlighting more articles from Wall Street on Parade as I start to figure out a little bit more of the corruption involved in these bailouts. Um, but. Just a couple things I wanted to highlight. One more article I want to highlight, and then we'll get into the uh, um, the chat I had with the Tasting Anarchy Boys. Well, actually, just one of them, but you get what I'm saying here. Um, so there's a lot of articles about college uh, demanding refunds. I mean, college students demanding refunds. So this was from a Wall Street article, uh, Wall Street Journal Journal article. Attorneys who um, represent universities says schools refusing to reimburse tuition is rooted in firm legal ground. By continuing to hold classes for credit remotely, they are fulfilling the terms of their contract. The students are going to have an uphill battle unless a school has actually shut down and they're not getting credit. In Philadelphia, where Drexel is, the basic contract agreement is I pay tuition and if I satisfy academic requirements, you give me credit. That's still happening. And there's something just fun about this where it's like you pay us so that we'll say that you're credentialed and so we're saying you're credentialed. And even if you didn't really get the education or the experience, well, we're still marking you as credentialed. And that's really the only reason you came here was for us to say that you were credentialed. I mean, obviously, we were never giving you an education. And I get that you're upset because you're young and you're not going to get to chug uh, butt bongs or have sex with other young, attractive people because chances are you're not at home doing that with your sister. <laughs> and we're not telling you that you can't do that at home or just I'm assuming you don't have as many options to, you know, uh, bang other young people and chug butt bongs. But, you know, at the end of the day, we told you you're going to be credentialed. So uh, you're still getting your credentials. And uh, I don't know, there was something great about that where they're not even saying like, hey, college is about the educational experience. And we get that you're not getting the full educational experience. So like, listen, the core product here is that 
you walk away and we credit you as being credentialed. And so um, we don't have integrity here. So, you know, it, even if this semester, even if all of next year, you're not really going to get the education that you would need for a job. It was never about that anyways. It was about you handing us $60,000 a year so that we could say that you're credentialed. And there you go. We're, we're telling you you're credentialed. So you're getting what you paid for. All right, that's the end of me ranting about uh, random news articles that I've read recently. Now let's get into it with uh, Jake from Tasting Anarchy. And uh, I'm just starting this mid-conversation because I don't really know how he got started on uh, his religious practices as a Quaker. I just thought that that was fascinating. I didn't even realize that Quakers still existed. So here's that. So now I became Quaker, and Quakers don't really do any holidays exactly. Um, they, I, I, We still do them basically not at church it's not a church function there there's no church in in like in the religious society of friends it's it's a meeting and then like then there's cultural stuff that goes on just general general american cultural stuff what do you get easter and christmas and that kind of stuff how do you come to be a quaker as an adult like were you recruited by some hot chick were you at a party and they <laughs> like it was like some wine circle that managed to recruit no. you how do you find being a quaker yeah, so I was actually a pretty hardcore Baptist when I was uh, like a young adult, and there. But I was also going through like my anarchist awakening, and okay. so so like there was stuff that I kept getting into, and I was on the business meeting of our church, so like I was like involved, pretty involved, and uh, there was things I really didn't like. I didn't like the American flag up on the pulpit. Um, I didn't. I uh, didn't like the constant asking for money, and I didn't like that they spent all the money on stuff that wasn't helping people. Okay. Uh, so like there. So I had like these conflicts, and then it kind of came to a head. And and I was I was never disinvited, but I was kind. They kind of were like, uh, maybe this is not for you. And at the, at the time, I was reading Tolstoy, um, and Tolstoy just mentions Quakers in it, just in passing. And I was like, you know, I've, I learned about those, those guys in high school. I didn't know that they still existed. And I looked it up, and sure enough, they still exist. And I started going to the meeting, know, and I was like... I only know two things about Quakers. First one was, for some reason, nobody liked them. And mm -hmm. second thing, their oats taste like shit. But that's it. That's all I know oh, about yeah. Quakers. <laughs> well, the oats now, are not theirs. The, oats, the reason that, they, that Quaker oats exist is because Quakers had a reputation for being honest and fair in business. So Quaker Oats adopted the the Quaker as their mascot so that you would know that they weren't mixing brick dust with their oats. Fair enough. I actually don't <laughs> like Quaker Oats that much. I mix them into yeah. smoothies sometimes. But yeah. what is the I, – I don't know anything about the Quaker religion other than for some reason I guess the pilgrims that came here didn't like them. That's it. That's yeah. the, the beginning and end of what I know about Quakers. So a, a lot of the, the reason the pilgrims didn't like them, they were Puritans and the Quakers were Quakers, uh, which is – I guess technically also a Protestant group. They, they didn't like them because they offered uh, free education to everybody. Um, and it was non, it was not uh, a religious oriented education. So they had actually a different type of education system uh, that was, it's like, a, it's basically like a pyramid. So basically in the morning, um, the older kids come in and are taught by the teacher. And then those kids teach the next row of kids. And then those kids teach the next row of kids. So, so by the could, end of the day, it's just kids learning how to fart in their armpits. That's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. But, but it, it was it was their goal was to make it so that uh, they would maximize um, literacy and like skills that would help them in business. And right, uh, right. and the Puritans didn't like that. 
And also the Quakers had things like, um, they, so there's something Quakers believe in called the continuing revelation. And it, it's that the Bible didn't just stop at, revel, at revelations. Like there's not like an end. It's that, that Christ will continue to speak to you through other things. So he, like he's still active in the world. It's not like revelations happen and the Bible's over. It's, it's that there's other things come, that are being spoken to and they mean different things to different people. And that, like, the Bible is... That's why I'm so drawn to sandwiches. I know that Jesus is sending me a message through them. (laughs) I don't know what it is yet, but it's there. (laughs) Right. Well, and that that was kind of one of the things that also Puritans really didn't like about Quakers, is they that uh, we don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is those people's experience of God. And so you can use it to learn more about God from their perspective, but... The Puritans didn't like that because they're like, no, this is the word of God. And it's blasphemy to say it's not, where that's just, that's not the perspective of Quakers. The perspective of Quakers is this is a historical document of these people's experience in the context of their understanding when they wrote it down. So what's the craziest thing that a priest or I guess a religious Quaker has ever said to you has been revealed to them? Because you guys, I guess, have a religion that there's ongoing prophecy so i would assume that you know some of the whoever's higher up in the command chain would make claims of prophecy so what's some of the crazier things you've heard someone (laughs) claim well so the structure of quaker meeting is very different than that there is no hierarchical structure there's no ministers or priests or anything like that so uh it's it's um, so anyone can come in and claim revelation yep they can but it's revelation for them not for everybody else. So, okay. Yeah. So, and and then if they're so you like, you can't have oh. a revelation. Like I know God told me that you got to stop bringing tuna casserole to church and that your kids need to be off my lawn. You can't claim that, but you well, can you be like, God sent me a message, <laughs> yeah. but no one would listen. Right. Yeah. Nobody would listen. They'd be like, okay. But uh, so yeah. So there's no there's no like priest or hierarchy in that sense. So there's not like a there there everybody is a minister equally. And this is actually, this was another big point of contention with the Puritans at the time is that Quaker, Quakers believed that um, women and men were equal and also all races were equal. And so you, they would all sit on equal levels in a circle together in meeting, whereas the Puritans... No wonder, uh, had... <laughs> no wonder everyone thought the Quakers were gay. Now it's all coming together. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they, they had that. So that was one of the, one of the big fighting things about that too but like the one one of the weird or one of the most fun things about quaker meeting the like the first time i went i came in i was talking to them and i was trying to learn more about it and like this old the the average age of, of like a quaker meeting is like 90 so this old guy comes to me and he's like hey uh, how you doing you know what's going on and i was like well you know i'm a christian and this is something interesting to me and i'm trying to learn learn more about this and uh he goes well we're not all christians here some of us are and some of us aren't but we are all friends in the religious society of friends and he goes for instance uh Anne over there she doesn't believe in jesus and he yells over at her and he goes hey Anne, jesus loves you and Anne goes who told you (laughs) it's just it's a bunch of old kind of you know uh very very friendly people super into charity and like helping other people and that sort of stuff but totally different walks of life totally different beliefs uh i i got started when i lived in virginia beach and um that meeting actually was uh they were allowing the Buddhists to share a space with them. So there was also Buddhists there during uh, Sunday worship. And uh, so it was just an interesting mix of people, a lot of old hippies, a lot of uh, 
people who live different lifestyles that are not accepted in other types of Protestant churches, like gays and and uh, uh, you know uh, different different uh, alternative lifestyle people, I guess would be the best way to say it. So it is, it's an interesting mix of people, and um, they don't do an offering, so there's no asking for money. You you give money. There's a box outside. You can give it anonymously if you want, uh, and that's that's basically it. You go sit and, and you are you sit quietly for an hour. Uh, if you feel like God is speaking to you, you can share that with the rest of the congregation, but it's, um, that's, that's it. I mean, it's like people will say, stand up and say weird things and that's always fun. So, so like I have this one guy one time stood up. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I'm sure nobody did. And I'm sure he didn't know either, but he like stood up and he was like, it's not spring yet, but it's very warm. And me and my wife were out walking and I saw a flower and I turned to my wife and I said, it's not time yet. And that was the end of his, his speech. And I was like, all right, <laughs> whatever that means. Does <laughs> anyone mean, ever get mad at people for oversharing? Like God did not speak to you again. Like no. quit standing. No, they're, they're <laughs> no. very welcoming. It's like AA. Yeah. If you want to get up and you got want the floor, sure. not that I've ever been to AA, but that's the way it's represented. Uh, yeah. Speaking of which, drinking seems very unquaker like. It is actually traditionally, yeah. Um, that is one of the things that I don't adhere to, obviously, because <laughs> uh, I run a show that is focused on wine. I try not to overindulge, uh, but that, that doesn't always work out either. But uh, there's a lot of stuff, though, that have changed over over time. Like early Quakers were like didn't believe in music and things like that, whereas modern Quakers kind of are more lax when it comes to that sort of stuff. So I actually go to a conservative meeting, which doesn't have music. Um, there's also evangelical meetings, which has a pre have a preacher and music and that sort of stuff. And then there's liberal Quaker meetings, which are similar to what I do, but they're not Christians. They're mostly atheists or agnostics. And, uh, but it, as far as the rules go, all of, there's no rules exactly. There is, there's kind of like general guidelines and pretty much everybody who wants to go and do this will adhere to those guidelines. And then, um, all of the rules are self-imposed. So whatever you choose to follow, that is like your own, that's your own thing. It's your own path. And, and, and other Quakers, if they think you're following the wrong path, they may, they do what's called offering a query. And so they'll give you a question to think about. And they won't be like, hey, you're bad or whatever. They'll be like, think about this. How does your drinking impact others? Or something like that, you know? So uh, I think my drinking impacts others in a very positive way. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, the, you know, that's that's more of the, the kind of the, path that so what, what are the uh what are the simple tenets of quaker quakering uh so there's i'm gonna try to remember all of them uh they're they're called testaments so there's uh seven testaments the testament of peace uh testament of fairness in business um the testament of silence so um being able to sit quietly um man i don't even remember all of them i can only think of three but uh let me see the Quaker testaments. I'll look them up because I are testimonies. I'll remember them when I look them up. Uh, simplicity. That's one simplicity. So not being uh, extravagant, um, being honest. That's one. So it's not just honesty in business, but also honest, honesty in general. So this also used to get them thrown in jail a lot because uh, if uh, they wouldn't swear oaths, like if you go into court, and they're like, put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they don't do that because they're they live the they live the testament 
of honesty, they don't they don't lie, so they're not going to swear that they're not lying. Um, that sounds conty to be honest, but okay. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, but they're also it comes in handy because then you won't testify against somebody, and they'll and they'll just say, no, I'm not going to testify. I'm just not going to testify against them. Um, so yeah, it's uh, simplicity, peace, um, integrity, which is honesty, uh, community. So. You're, you're supposed to be active in your community, and, and also that can be interpreted in different ways. Uh, equality is, um, it's not necessarily uh, equality in like the egalitarian sense, it's more equality in the way that you treat other people. Um, so th that's another thing that in England they used to get in trouble for this all the time, is they wouldn't take their hat off if like a nobleman came by. Uh, so they, so like that was one, and they wouldn't call people sir, or they wouldn't use honorifics. Um, and then also back then, the these and thous and things like that were um, you would use those in different ways to uh, talk to different people of social standing, but they would use the familiar for everyone. So that would get them in trouble and thrown in jail a lot. Um, stewardship so, is one. When you got thrown out of uh, your your Baptist church, yeah, I wasn't uh, thrown out exactly. I was invited to leave. So <laughs> you were invited to leave. They're like, listen, you're asking a few too many questions about the money. And, uh, you know, we'd rather not you ask, asking all these questions, so maybe don't come here anymore. So when they said that to you, did you start thinking like, oh, I need to find myself a new faith? Or did you have a moment there where you're just like, fuck religion and fuck faith? Or you were just instantly like, I guess these guys are doing God wrong? Uh, yeah, I kind of was like, I think they've got it wrong. Uh, and i have actually I have a history of this because I did this with politics too, and this is what sort of led me to being like a libertarian anarchist was I was like in my mind going like fuck them, I'll start my own because they're doing it wrong and, and I did this when I was in high school like I, I i I used to actually be in charge of the young Republicans in high school, and then um the war the, the iraq that's that that was basically it. I was like, this is not what they said it was going to be. this was going to be like in and out in six months and then and we win and there's a huge victory and all that sort of stuff and we we were there from like my freshman year. I think it was my senior year as I signed, I finally was like, yeah, this is not working out. And, uh, and also my dad's in the military. So he was gone for a huge amount of my high school years. And I was like, this is not what I was promised. I was promised it would be just in and out and done. And so instead of like soul searching then and going like, well, what other parties exist? What other ideas exist? I was like, well, they all have it wrong. I have it right. I'm starting my own. And so I did. I started the young American conservatives in, in my high school called the Yak. Young American conservatives, and it basically ended up just being the same thing. All the same people came because nobody else wanted to run it. Right. And so a similar thing actually happened after this. I was upset about it, and I was like, and at the time, like I said, I was reading Tolstoy, and I was like, well, Tolstoy, he's got the answers. This is what's right. I want to. I'm going to start my own like Tolstoy church or something like that. And uh, and but I I just I, I didn't have the bandwidth for it. I, you know, I was working full time and had a lot of other stuff going on in my life at the time. And so just kind of was like, well, but I, I do, I, I'm in this habit of going to church every Sunday. I want to find a new place and this place is not working out for me. Maybe other denominations are, uh, are going to like be what I want them to be. And that's kind of how I fell across this basically because Tolstoy mentioned it. And, and I was like, well, I'll check out and see what they're like. Cause Tolstoy was like, what is I, I don't know who Tolstoy is. Uh, you know uh, the book War and Peace and Anna Karenina. Yes. Never he wrote read those. it, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so he, he wrote those. He's he was an anarchist in Russia around the turn of the century. Um, he wrote two really books that were really impactful to me. One of them is called What I Believe, 
and the other one's called The Kingdom of God is in You. And um, they're basically just books about how evil war is uh, and like how like he can't believe that like the priests in Russia are standing there behind a big poster of the czar telling young Christians to go kill other Christians or telling Christians to go kill what he called Mohammedans at the time, but uh, Muslims. And he was like, this is totally counterintuitive to the teachings of Christ. And it makes no sense at all. And so like I was reading through that. And I was like, this parallels like what's going on in America right now is that like, you've got like everybody's wrapped in the cross and the flag. And it's like, this is not, these are not the teachings that like, if you just read the Bible, the Bible doesn't say this. And, uh, especially the new Testament. I mean, the old Testament's kind of a bit of a different story, but the, especially like the teaching of Christ, I'm like, how can you be like Christ is on our side and then go kill, you know, a million plus Iraqis. Like, like it just, it doesn't work. Like that's not well because by virtue of the fact that we're killing them, Christ clearly isn't on their side. You know, it's just like <laughs> I guess I simple math. They wouldn't be dying if Christ was helping them out. Although Christ right, is right. kind of all about, I guess, uh, you know, turning the other cheek and maybe sacrificing. Maybe yeah. I don't know Christian faith at all, so maybe they were being even more Christian. So your dad's like a super military dude. Do you guys now don't get along because you're? Uh, like, I guess you're pretty driven on the, hey, let's be more peaceful. Like, does that come up? Or you just, like, kind of don't bring it up so you can get along with him on a personal level? Yeah, I mean, he knows what I think. But, yeah, we don't really talk a huge amount about it. Uh, I, he's He lately is coming around a lot more on it because, like, I, I think once you've been at war for, you know, since, what, 2002 uh, or 2001 even, like, once it's been at war that long, I mean, it's – it's 20 it's close to 20 years now and like this is and then you see multiple crises like economic crises and and i think as a direct result to um these wars or, or as at least in part make it made more severe to it i think he's starting to kind of go like yeah i don't i don't know why this is happening and then also under obama which you know he was very much anti-obama um under obama the expansion of wars in more theaters and just kind of seeing that now, granted, I can't speak for him. Like he is, he's a, you know, true blue loves, uh, I think he's in the military for the right reasons, but he also, I think too, when he rejoined. So my dad was actually a reservist when I was a little kid. And then he, he went back to duty again in 2000, right before nine 11. And, um, I think he sees there's a big difference between the recruits now and the recruits when he was coming in. It's like, he came in to fight for freedom, uh, against, you know, the Soviets basically. And, uh, the recruits now are coming in to get free college, get a, a salary because they don't know what else to do. There's not a lot of other job opportunities. I think he sees that like the recruiters lie a lot to recruits. Um, these are people who live in the middle of you know nowhere in the in the United States, and they really have no way out of their economic situations because of what the Federal Reserve has done to their economic situation. So they're so and I think kind of introducing these ideas and him kind of seeing like this is a feedback effect created by uh, the war machine that this is recruiting people who probably shouldn't be going over to Iraq and dying. They should be at home making their community better and, and living that type of life. So I think there is a little bit of that, but I think at the same time, like you've de he's dedicated his entire life to this job. He's still active duty now. Like I'm, I'm 30, I'll be 33, uh, on Monday. So he's been in the military after du active duty for almost my entire life, uh, for all of all, but I think, 10 years of it. Uh, so he's been active duty for 22 years and he was a reservist for those other 10 years. So 
when you've done that your entire life, I think maybe it's hard to start kind of critiquing it. I guess it's, it's a little bit difficult to kind of go like, well, maybe this wasn't the right thing for me to do. It's a cognitive dissonance. I've said it before to me. It's one of the biggest evils of the world is that everyone's just doing their job. It's usually people kind of create these frameworks. They're, they're not us. Like you just show up and you're like, Hey, I'm doing a job. And then all of a sudden you realize what you're doing super evil, but no one wants to think of themselves yeah. as evil. So, you know, you search for all the evidence for why you're doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. And it's, yeah. uh, one of the one of the terrible things of the world. So as we all kind of go through this uh, quarantine, I don't know what your feelings are, whether or not this is uh, being overdone, not overdone. But as a wine sommelier, I'm just going to give you that title now, <laughs> right. a wine expert, I, I, what, right. do you, what are you recommending to people to get through this thing? What what pairs well with being forcefully quarantined from your home? <laughs> Large quantities of cheap wine. Uh I, I, I've actually been pretty well stocked. I, I usually keep uh, about 150 bottles on hand at all times. So, uh, and, and I rotate them out, but, uh, right now I'm actually, I'm drinking from, uh, I'm from California originally. I was living in Virginia. I live in Texas now, but, uh, I, I grew up in Eldorado County. I'm, I'm drinking a wine from Eldorado County right now. And it's uh, called Smithereens. Uh, and it's, uh, a GSM. And for anybody who doesn't know a GSM, it's, it's the new world's answer to Rhone style blends. So it's got Grenache, Morvedre and Syrah. Uh, it's, um, this actually, this would actually probably appeal to a lot of people. It's, it's a very fruity wine. It's low in tan. So what a lot of people object to with like the bolder wines is that high tan and high alcohol flavors. This has got a lot lower on that. It's a lot more fruity. It's not sweet, but it's reminiscent of sweet because of the fruit flavors. So, uh, it, it is very easily drinkable. It's a uh, light body, um, or well, I say medium body, light mouth feel. Uh, if you're typically a sweet wine drinker. And I just want to say awesome. this entire analysis is just proof that even in 2020, the Quakers are still gay, but continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good wine. Um, for quarantine wine though, look, this is what's going on right now is you got to look for probably ways to save money. And uh, I already bought this, so and also I'm not unemployed. I, I'm still working. I just I'm a software developer, so I can work from wherever. Um, but uh, if you're looking to save money, you know, do you guys have Aldi up there in New York? Do we have what? Aldi. I don't know what Aldi is. What is that? Okay. Like a supermarket? Aldi. Yeah, it's like a, it's a German supermarket that's uh, expanding over in the United States. They they have them in Virginia and down here. I don't know if they have them up north yet. Uh, and then there's also Lidl, which is like kind of a sister company to them. Uh, but they're, they're both German supermarket chains. They actually have this like $3 wine. That's not bad. It's, it's wine from a concentrate, but it's overall, it's very palatable. It's, it's not offensive in any way. It's just, it's a fruity wine. They have, I think five varieties. They have a Capsov. They have a white, which I don't remember what it is. They have a Merlot. Uh, I think they have a Malbec actually, which is kind of weird. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, all of the ones that I've had are, are good and they're, and they're, I think $3 and 50 cents, uh, down here. I don't, I don't know what they are up there with the, the do tax. You, uh, do you actually have a wine cellar? No, I have a bar, but, uh, and okay. a wine fridge. So it's not bad. I, I and yeah, yeah. like, what's the most expensive bottle, like on any given week you might pop open? Like what's the upper range of like, you're like, ah, it's Friday night. Let's drink one of the nice ones and you pull it out. What does that bottle cost you? Uh, I've uh, if my wife's drinking it with me, probably sixty or seventy dollars. If it's just me, then probably twenty-five or thirty. I, I usually don't splurge on my on myself. I think you can get really good wines for twenty-five bucks. 
Um, there's and there's not really any reason to get higher wine. I mean, they are good. It, you are paying for a higher quality wine, but for every dollar above thirty dollars, I think you are. It's diminishing returns. So, uh, I mean, you can get a two hundred dollar bottle of wine. It's delicious, but you can get a a thirty dollar bottle of wine that's just as good, may, maybe slightly less. But uh, you just have to know what to look for. Got you. I drink everything. Like I'll drink toilet water with alcohol in it. Um, <laughs> right. And wine is just like the only category of booze because I rotate through. Like I do have my staples, but I do kind of like rotate through all the different things. Like there's some people like they just drink whiskey. That's all they ever drink. And I'm not that person. I really kind of rotate through what I'm drinking. It's very like dependent on what I'm up to. But just wine is never like it's never the thing. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of those things that uh, I would say it's, a, it's an acquired taste. It's there's such a variety that you got to find the one that that you like and then that's your foot in the door because All right. it, then you start kind of understanding what's going on a little bit more and that's the problem with wine that's why it's it's kind of a snobs drink because it's it is it it can be very basic and very good like uh like i drink i drink like ten dollar uh sauvignon blanc at the pool i have a pool so like i, I drink like white wines out by the pool and like it's uh like they're cheap, they're refreshing, they're great cold, they're not complex. They're just it tastes basically like a cider, like a like a dry cider. So it's and it's a good, but it's a good wine to drink. It's usually higher yeah, alcohol you, content than a cider. Do you drink other booze <laughs> at all, or like are yeah. you exclusively wine if you're drinking? No, I'm wine and beer pretty much. Uh, I like ciders too. I don't drink a lot of cider, but I will. I'll drink that. There's a couple of mixed drinks I like, but they're all gay. So, uh, so that, like that, that's not not usually my go-to. Uh, uh, I don't like. I don't like the hard sel that what's it's real popular now is that hard seltzer water. I'm not crazy about that. You know, I thought like I at first I. Someone once brought me the seltzers and I didn't like them at all just based off flavor. I don't know what brand it was. It was like two years ago. I wasn't into it. Then when I saw more and more of them, I was like, dude, I drink vodka seltzer. I don't need a pre-mixed can of mm. like grain alcohol. It Like I was like, this makes no sense to me. I don't even yeah. know. Anyways, I at some point, my roommate had left. Uh, like he went away. He went away and uh, I never keep. I don't really keep booze in my apartment. I kind of have a problem. We don't have to get into it. Anyways, yeah. he went away and he left one can of like truly hard seltzer. And I came in late at night and I was like, fuck it. I'm drinking that. I'll just replace it. I couldn't replace it. I had to buy a whole 16 pack just so that I could replace that one. He wouldn't even notice. And I probably could have told him, but that was like my own thing. I don't like yeah. stealing. And I was like, I got to <laughs> replace that before he shows up. So then I yeah. had to drink the other 15 of them because, you know, I was just going to replace the one. I kept the other 15 in my closet. And then after that, I kind of got into it. I got to say like, but here's the thing, like you're kind of a wine snob. I go the opposite way. I love my, I love my good IPAs. I swear on my good yeah. IPAs. I drink good IPAs. I also love like, uh, my bullet rye and my maker's mark. Those are kind of my staples. But on the other side of that, I drink vodka Red Bull. I'm a fucking asshole. You catch me on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. Saturday night when I'm out, I'm vodka Red Bull. I'm I'm trash then that way. And let me tell you, now when I used to like when I used to just pick up like a single beer late at night, because I do that sometimes. I got bodegas by me. And the sure. only thing I would pick up from the bodegas would be um things from Flying Dog because they're dated. Like okay. all the other yeah. booze, oh, man, they man. don't yeah. They don't date them. So if you go to a random bodega, yeah. uh, IPAs don't have a great sh shelf life, but the right, flying, right. flying dog ones are dated. The Truth IPA is excellent. The Raging Bitch is not yeah, quite Raging an IPA, Bitch. but it's so Yeah. Well, terrific. I like the Raging Bitch. Yeah, it's a great one. 
Raging Bitch is terrific, but now I've been picking up the double. I, I got I to gotta admit to it. Sometimes, firstly, I'm kind of going the other way where I'm, I'm back to really liking Budweiser. I used to just okay. be, like, fine with Budweiser. Now sometimes I'm like, I don't even need the good IPA. I'm good with the Budweiser, but I've also, this is really low class. You get the double, um, but I've never been a Bud Light guy. I've, I've hated Bud Light people, but let me tell you, these Bud Light seltzers aren't bad. It's like just drinking a flavored seltzer. Uh, the cat, I, I, well, I don't really care about the calories, <laughs> but yeah. they go down easy. You can pick up like two, like I feel like I'm back in high school. Where I'm buying like the the big cans again. You just yeah. get those big ass, the double cans. They're a couple bucks, and those things go down like water. I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of lagers in general, but uh, I do like those big cans. Like the the other day, my wife and I were uh, grocery shopping our our weekly allotment of grocery shopping because of quarantine, but. Um, and they had like the tall boys and I was like, Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that like local breweries had these tall boys here. And so like, I, I was like, Oh, I want to try this one. And I want to try this one and try this one. And I ended up getting like six or seven uh, local IPAs. And that's the thing is like local, like local breweries, they brew IPAs like crazy. And they're all usually pretty, pretty fresh. Uh, and so that, that was fun to do, but yeah, I've never been a huge fan of, uh, of loggers, so like I've always had a hard time with Budweiser or or any any sort of like Coors Light or any of the any of the you know I started with Budweiser in high school and so yeah. it's still just kind of my beer. Now what's funny about it is that at this point like I, it was just marketing. The first time yeah. at sixteen I went to go buy a beer. <laughs> Budweiser is like the most American thing. You're like fuck it, I'm gonna drink a Budweiser. And when I was in high school, you could pick up the forty ounce Budweisers for two fifty. So you were like yeah. it, getting drunk was free. You know what I mean? Right. It was literally free. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, so, that's so funny because you know I, to this day I still actually have a, a pretty strong bias to um, Guinness Extra Stout, and that's okay. what I started in high school was Guinness Extra Stout, and I don't know why. I think that's just what was available to us, and so that's what we drank a lot of. And uh, same thing though, it's like that it's was just, my it, It's the marketing. It's yeah. literally marketing works for whoever wants to claim it didn't. When I was oh. first was going to go get a beer, Budweiser was American. I was going to drink. But now what's funny about that is it's owned by a fucking German conglomerate at this point. It's yeah. the least American product ever. But it's not like they're ever going to advertise, hey, the Germans that killed your grandparents now uh, own Budweiser. Yeah. Um, talking about local IPAs, my firstly, what I look for in an IPA, we're going to get into the booze talk. I like a hazy IPA. Yeah. I also like higher gravity, like between 75 and 10%. I also like unfiltered um, and then just anything like if it's got like citrusy, any of those bold words and local, yeah. I've almost never tried a local IPA anywhere that hasn't been good. Like it's very yeah. rare that you try with, I'll say one exception though. And I wonder where you, where you come off on this. Obviously when beer is fresh off the tap, it's the best oh, for yeah, the yeah. most part. I don't order beer off the tap. Like unless I'm at like an actual brewery, because it's, I'm never going to send beer back, and more often than not, I find places just aren't maintaining their taps well. Well, you know, I, I actually, and I've actually been up in your neck of the woods uh, quite a few times. When my wife and I first met, she lived in New York City, and so I used to come up there a lot. And uh, there's a lot of really good local breweries there. And, and you know what? I'm kind of along your I Mine is not because I won't send it back. It, it Mine is I'm non-confrontational. So if something's not bad, I just won't drink it, and I'll order something different. Yeah, that's and, what I do. Yeah, I'm kind of pussy. Pussy. That's yeah, yeah, pussies. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, Brooklyn Brewery actually blew up pretty, pretty big down in Virginia Beach, which is you know six hours down from New York City. And um, and I used to drive up every every twice a month to see my now wife, my girlfriend then, and uh, we would go to. Brewery. She doesn't drink at all, but like that's what I was interested in. So we'd go to breweries around there. And I thought Brooklyn Brewery 
had a lot of really good offerings. Uh, there was a couple of other local ones. That I don't recall all of them. Brooklyn Brewing is the only one that I remember because I can get it here. Even, even in Texas, I can get it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I kind of, I, I sort of agree with you. Like I'm, I need to be around somebody who's willing to send it back in order to uh, send it back. Like I won't do it. I'll just be like, well, you know, it's only, it's only four bucks or whatever, five bucks. Like I, I'm not gonna send it back. I'll just get something else. And, uh, but like, if I'm with somebody who's a little bit like my, my, my co-host Mason on tasting anarchy, he is the king of like, this is shit. Bring it back. Like he yeah. is, he's the king of like, no, I'm not, this is unacceptable, but he's also the king of like choosing things that are not available. So like we, there's a, in Virginia beach or actually in uh, Portsmouth, we used to go to this place. It was a German restaurant called the, the beer garden. And their, their big claim to fame is that they had like 200 beers. And uh, we would go there and we all, we get a bunch of beers and stuff like that. And, um, but he would notoriously order his first three orders would all be out. Cause he always wanted the most bizarre, weird shit that like <laughs> that they didn't normally stock. But then he was like, why is it on the menu? And, and he'd have this big kind of, not a big fight, but he would have this like he's confrontation with the waiter. He just yeah, wants to guy. be a prick to waiters. You were the wrong people to be <laughs> prick to, but whatever. Right, right, God bless right. him. That's why you guys must balance out well. Um, it, let me ask you that. You know anything about starting like a liquor company? I really want to start a whiskey brand. I got some good ideas for it. Oh my God, it's, it's tough. And actually I can hook you up with somebody who has a lot of experience in, in the beer world. Uh, well, actually... And this is this is the big problem though with with liquor and wine and beer in general is the the laws vary from state to state. So after prohibition ended, basically the the amendment that it repealed the prohibition amendment basically said uh, we're leaving it up to the states for the most part. Now the the, the federal you know the ATF and, and that sort of stuff does still have a lot of influence in that, but. Uh, from a state level, most states implemented something called a three-tier system, and the three-tier system basically says that most manufacturers of alcohol are not allowed to distribute directly to consumers. Now there's there's kind of uh, some wiggle room on that, so like wineries are allowed to distribute directly, breweries are allowed to sell directly at the brewery in most states. Uh, I think you can kind of sell online now. Sometimes you can, and actually in the recent like crisis and stuff like that, you can, but it's all about reciprocal agreements between states. So there's there's a it's a it's very difficult to navigate this. It's um, and three tier system makes it really difficult. Now there was a recent Supreme Court decision that went through uh, that um, basically eliminated residency re- restrictions. So uh, I think this was in Tennessee. There they were requiring that in order for you to open up a alcohol shop and do online sales in the state, you also have to, had to be a resident of the state. So if you so like Total Wine, which is a big wine distributor and, and beer and, and liquor distributor, they were not allowed to operate in Tennessee because the owners are not there's not a single owner that can move to Tennessee. Right. It's a corporation. So uh, they were like they were not allowing them to move in. And they won a big court case against Tennessee on that. In ten- and this was now I, I'm of mixed opinions of this because like on the one hand, like this is like interstate commerce clause stuff. But on the other hand, it's like. Well, if the state, if this is what the state wants to do, then let them do it. Like, who gives a fuck? Like, and, but you know, that's that's one thing. Then there was uh, another recent court decision. Uh, I think it was Indiana. Um, Cap Cap and Cork, I think is the company's name. Cap and Cork versus the state of Illinois, which Cap and Cork is in Indiana. Illinois is Illinois, and uh, Cap and Cork is a pretty big chain in Indiana. And they wanted to be able to ship 
alcohol to their customers in Illinois. Illinois said, no, you have to go through one of the distributors in Illinois. Well, Illinois has a, a duopoly distributing system. They have only two major companies that distribute alcohol in this in the entire state. And um, so Captain Cork said, this is, you know, this is protectionism, it's unfair. And uh, they brought it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in their favor and said, you know what, you're right. You should be allowed to sell this across state lines. So that that is in some ways a victory, in some ways not a victory. Like it, it depends on kind of how you look at it. But ultimately, alcohol is very, very difficult. And people don't really realize this. This is like the, the, the tagline of our show, Tasting Anarchy, is how much government is in your drink. And a lot of government is in your drink. It doesn't right. matter where you are. I mean, from the taxes to the regulation. Uh, it, that's why it's hard to get certain things. Like I can't – there's this uh, particular French Cabernet uh, Franc that I want to get from – uh the it's well this is is technical it's from the right bank of the um the bordeaux region of france i want to get this wine it's not allowed to be shipped to texas because they have one importer the importer is in new jersey and new jersey doesn't have a reciprocal agreement with texas so i can't get directly to me from new jersey what i can do and this costs a lot more money is i and it's a cheap wine too it's only like ten dollars a bottle but I just want it. I just want to try it. I can get it to be shipped from New Jersey to Virginia, where my co-host is, and then my co-host can theoretically send me Heritage Kombucha because also you're not allowed to uh, send alcohol in the mail without a license. Uh, he can send me Heritage Kombucha, and when I open it up, if it happens to be this Cab Franc that I want, you know, that's a bonus to me. So there, there's a lot of these kind of like weird regulations that exist. It's difficult for new entries to the market. Now, that's not to discourage anybody. There are a lot of new entries to the market. Um, here in Texas, this is a, a booming wine region. We've got a, a lot of uh, companies that are growing and they're learning how to ship the wine out of here. Uh, I helped plant with, and actually this was Mar Marfa Fest. I was supposed to go do this at the end of the month and go help plant a new vineyard, but it was canceled because of social distancing and the liability and stuff involved with it. Um, but which I find ridiculous. But Ricky, the guy who owns Alta Marfa, which is a new a new vineyard, uh, popping up down in the Marfa region of Texas, which is about nine hours away from here, and um, they they're learning kind of the ropes. Like so, right now, you know, Texas is a big market. You can sell a lot of wine here in Texas, but Texas is not really a wine drinking state. You want to get out of the state to the wine drinkers in the rest of the country. And uh, it is a tricky road to navigate, but it, it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. Now, also up north of us, uh, a friend of Childeberg, uh, he owns, he's a part owner of a brewery in Oklahoma City. He's same thing. He's got to he's got to deal with distributors down here in Texas. If he wants to distribute here, he's got to do, deal with distributors in every state around him. There are certain states he's not allowed to distribute in. And, and they're and they're doing better. It's it's tricky for them to get it, but it, it is a lot of regulation to navigate. So if you want to start your own whiskey brand or your own wh whatever brand you want to start, there's a couple ways to do it. If you don't want to go through the whole process of making it yourself, there's something called white labeling, which is basically you can buy from somebody who you like and get them to give you a white label, and you label it the way you want it to be labeled, and you distribute that on your own for now, and and you'll have access to their distribution network. And you distribute that and and market it on your own to get people to buy it. And once you've built up enough capital, then you kind of go into making your own and you go from, you know, Robbie Bernstein's fire whiskey to Robbie Bernstein's fire how, select whiskey or whatever. So how hard is it to white label like a bourbon? Here's my idea. 
I, I mean, I, I run podcast ads, and thus far, none of these liquor brands will touch us. And I see the way we move products for a ton of industries. And let me tell you, beer and liquor is the best fit. I know my audience. I know the content. Like, the fact that but bands like Budweiser won't touch us, or at least thus far won't touch us, it's their loss. Somebody's going to be able to poach. Like, you don't understand, in terms of podcast advertising, fucking distorting markets. Like, I was in someone's oh, yeah. bathroom recently, and they had uh, Harry's Razor, Quip Toothbrushes. It was like... Some of these big brands like Procter and Gamble have probably yeah. lost every twenty-year-old male for the next sixty years. Like I'm sure there will be new people for the next generation of young brands and wherever those people consume media. But I'm just saying, dudes, age twenty to forty, probably don't buy any of the brands that our parents did that you go find at CVS because marketers were in the wrong places. And I'm telling yeah. you, someone can come in with a whiskey on these things and fucking displace these other people. So I just wanted to start fuck you, Whiskey Corp. Quit, yeah. quit buying American branded bourbon that's actually German conglomerates. Support America. <laughs> support delicious yeah. whiskey and fuck everybody else. Yeah, so check. You can check this out, and and there's ways to do it. It uh, probably Tennessee is probably the best place, but there are companies that specialize in white labels. So you and and wine. This works. This works the way with wine. Also, there's a, there's a, and then beer too. There's a company called Aleworks in Virginia who will sell you white label beer, and you can label it whatever you want. Um, Aleworks does that, and actually, Aleworks is pretty good. They, I think, they have three or four uh, white labels. You can, you can get a, you can get a lager, an IPA, and I think like a, like a saison or something like that. And and it's a white label. You put whatever you want on it. They'll do it for you actually, and they'll and they'll distribute it for you too. Uh, so you can probably do this. Go look at, at Tennessee uh, whiskey or Tennessee bourbon or or wherever or Kentucky. I guess Kentucky is where bourbon's from. Uh, yeah, isn't Bourbon County in in Kentucky? So. Uh, Look for white label brands there and then market how you want to market it or, or talk to them specifically and just say, you know, this is, you know, fire brand whiskey or fire brand. And, and actually here we make bourbon. We make whiskey here in Texas, too. So uh, they, there are companies that specialize in that. You just got to talk to them and they'll already have the distribution worked out. That's the biggest problem right now is the three tier distribution system. It's very expensive. Like the the cost of alcohol for us consumers is greatly greatly inflated because of the three tier system because every at, at every point somebody's got to take a cut and you've People got this middle cut. man yeah, yeah they need their cut all right you've so got, yeah let's get into childerberg here i'm assuming okay. it's probably not flying but i'd love to hear a little bit you're like a go-getter kind of guy you seem yeah. to actually get shit off the ground so i'd love to hear a little bit about last year's childerberg and i'm sure once i hand this over to you you're going to talk because you're a talker but yeah, you guys got it off the ground. What went down last year? <laughs> what you think's gonna go down this year? If you guys are rescheduling, because uh, I was excited for it. Okay, so as of now, we're not rescheduling. So right now, uh, Austin. Now it may turn out that it's just uh, it's just a couple of us here down in Texas because I know that there's travel restrictions in other places. So if, if people aren't able to make it, that's fine. Uh, but Austin hasn't canceled the the park. Uh, so this is at, at Emma Long Metropolitan Park. The date is. Uh, May 23rd through 26th, as of now, it's still on because in Texas, our quarantine is over April 30th right now. I don't know what change. I don't know what changes there'll be like if the governor changes it, whatever, you know, and and then the city of Austin, they may also change it. Who knows? Austin is a, is a different beast than like Dallas where I live. So, uh, there is a different type of government, different, different, different situation. So we'll see what happens. But as of right now, the park is still open. They haven't refund, you know, all of, all of the expenses for Childerberg are always out of pocket for me until our, our tickets 
the ticket sales is not where we make money. It's usually merchandise sale, um, so T-shirts and things like that. I didn't do a Childerberg Dose T-shirt yet. Uh, we did. We did have plans for one to come out soon that could be picked up at Childerberg Dose, but uh, we'll see what happens. I'm not that worried about it. Like you know, it, it is a little bit of an expense, but it's it's not. It's just, it's really not that big of a deal. It it we we. We had the Investigate Childberg t-shirts, which really covered a lot of it. But um, anything else, if, if they do end up canceling it and refunding me my money, we will we will change the venue and postpone it to another time. Uh, I'm sort of relying on the LNC canceling their event. And right now, the LNC is still on. Uh, so if, the, if that's still on, I'm still on. We may have lower attendance. That, that's one thing or the other. I, if, you're, if you have travel restrictions, then obviously you won't be able to make it. But... I've got several other people who are going to come that they have not changed their plans. And so as far as I'm concerned, Childerberg's still on. So if you guys are planning to come out to Childerberg, come out. It's going to be a great time still. Uh, we'll have, you know, it's, it'll be cookouts. The river is there to swim in. We'll have some volleyball games, some Frisbee games. Uh, there's a Frisbee golf course nearby. There's some great hiking. Uh, we'll see what businesses are open. We did have a, a brew tour uh, lined up. But we'll see what the breweries have open or not. We also had a whiskey tour lined up because the whiskey trail is pretty near Austin. And uh, we had a, a, a Childerberg attendee who was interested in that. Um, and and uh, that uh, – well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So, anyways, for right now, it's, it's still on. Um, All right. And the, then okay. I hit Yelp one night. I, was, uh, yeah. I wasn't kidding, but I was hammered. But I wasn't kidding. And I had this idea where when when Massey uh, went back to Congress, he did a 12 hour drive, went back to Congress just to make them all show up and vote. And I thought that was hilarious. I mean, God bless him for, you know, making them show up and put their names down on paper. But it was obviously going to pass. And I just I I don't know. The the, the child in me was like, good for this guy. He's being a pain in the ass. And I also know that uh, Rand's from Kentucky. And I know some of all the guys in New Hampshire are going to be pissed off when I say this. God bless the uh, Free State Project. I wish you guys all (laughs) luck in the world. But anyways, I was like, I just had it in my head. I was like, Kentucky's fucking awesome. They already got these senators that are fairly libertarian. And even though, uh, I mean, I don't follow what's his name all that much. The guy that they say, or the Grumbler guy, or Turtle. Or, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know his name. Yeah, uh, You know what I'm talking about, though. He's like, yeah. he's the main dude. What's his name? It's just, it's escaping my mind right now. The Turtle guy? Yeah, he's like the main uh, dude. He's been the head of, like, the just okay but i also just respect that like i don't think that guy could be a senator from any other state and he dictates a lot of power just because he's been there forever and the people of kentucky yeah. like him you got bourbon in kentucky i think i i think i once read about a donut trail in kentucky i just had in my mind when this fucking shit was going down and i was like out of new york city i was like i gotta start looking into some fucking actual property with some fucking land and then i looked in kentucky and i saw a spot i think it was like 40k and i was like that's not even that unreasonable and then i had this idea where maybe as a business model this was kind of my theory for the business model and it's kind of what you guys were already doing with childerberg was i was thinking let's make this a summer timeshare so it's got immediate value this could be your summer vacation rental where we get a property and it's got a lake and it's got a decent house so that, you know, maybe everyone takes it two, three weeks out of the summer, whatever the fuck it is. It's got tangible value right now. Plus, we use it as a staging ground to do a minimum of like two events a year, maybe like a Childerberg, maybe something else. But the point is, it's like there's tangible value now 
with all the money coming in, going into disaster site resources where, you know, as we get more people, it's like, obviously the house is the house and you and I are going to host orgies in there, but we'll start building cabins for everybody else. We'll start, if you get enough money, you build the medical center, you start stocking up with arms, you start figuring out how to get a farmer there year round so that, you know, you just lease the farm to him. But the point is you have tangible value now because it's a site that people can go party at. And you can yeah. timeshare it, but the reality is we're trying to build a disaster site so that if all of economy, everything fucking goes to shit, if you're a member of this, this is a club and you can show up in its farmable land with people you know you like and running water. So that was kind of the business model. And since you're the one person I know who knows how to get shit off the ground, I hit you up online. I was just filled out like nine pages of, all right, here's what we're going to do. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about doing that. So I'll let yeah, you take yeah. it from there. Okay, so this is interesting. It's interesting because you and I actually had a parallel thought, and and I had this actually before the Corona thing. As I was like, this is, and you know, I've been thinking about that. I don't know how. I don't. I think you and I are roughly the same age. I'm 33, so I think yeah. you're, you're you and I are roughly the same age. So I don't know how much you were impacted by 2008, but the 2008 crisis, like I was just out of, or I was just, I was almost out of college, but I had just started my first full time job, and I was like, holy fuck. Like, this is it. This is the end. This is the end of America. And uh, and I, I caught myself this time because when the market started crashing, and, and I, I'm a little bit in the market as well. Like, I, I do a little bit of day trading. And uh, when, and fortunately, the way I trade, like, I didn't lose any money. Or I, I lost a little bit, but not that, that much. But, like, uh, when I saw it crashing, I was like, this is it. This is the end of America. And I caught myself, and I was like, you know what? You thought this in 2008 also. Let, let's wait and see. Let's see what everybody else says. And and thing is, like, you know, Bob Murphy came out and talked about it. Uh, Stockman, you know, I put a lot of faith in Stockman. Uh, like, he he came out and talked about it. Um, who's the international man guy? Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. But, like, he, he, he lives in, like, Nicaragua or something like that right now. And, like, a lot of these economists that, like, I listen to and, and pay attention to are kind of come out and saying, like, you know what? This is going to be – this is probably – this is probably going to be bad. It's probably going to be a, a very deep recession, but it's it's going to reorganize again, and they're going to be able to reinflate it again, and we're not going to see this hyperinflation. And the reason being that even though we're pumping six trillion six trillion dollars, probably more by the end of this, probably ten trillion dollars by the end of this, um, into the economy, everybody else is being is doing worse. And so the dollar demand is high, and that kind of spreads out the, the inflation. So the, the demand is high enough that it will keep the, the, the inflation in check, and, and we'll have another decade or so of slow growth, the same thing we had in, from 2008 until now, 0% interest rates for 10 years or eight years or however long, and this slow growth over a long time. And this is, this is like no shit, like get prepared time. We've got 10 more years. Maybe they'll yeah, be I was to, saying yeah. it's the extension on the test. You know, yeah. you showed up, you were late for the final. I mean, you weren't prepared for the final. You showed up and you're like, okay, I'm fucked. And then the teacher's out and you're like, oh, wow, I've got three more days. So right. 
I felt the way from the last time I was like, hey, you got to get prepared. And then just you stop caring because you fall. Even though I wasn't investing in the market, I took all my money out of the market uh, two years ago. Not that yeah. it was like a ton of money, but it was all I, it was funny. I was smart in high school. I worked these jobs. I put it all into <laughs> fucking Roth IRAs. And then I didn't even realize how much it was worth. Uh, God bless saving for retirement. That's the only money I have for retirement, by the way, is what I put away in yeah. fucking high school. I should have spent that money on drugs. But anyways, uh, I called I took that, all that shit out of the market. But I agree with you that if we get away with this and they reinflate the whole bubble, smart people should start realizing, okay, I just caught a break, but I don't think it's not going to, it's not going to work forever. It's just not. Yeah. And it can't. And this thing is, is even if they somehow pull it off again after this, if if this bubble gets reinflated again, you've got 10 more years and they reinflate another bubble and you got 20 years, you know, this is, this is a 10 year cycle and, and, and it's, and it's pretty reliable. You can look at this 1987, uh, 1999, 2000-ish, there was a dot-com crash. Um, well, actually, I think it was a little before that. Uh, 9-11 also caused a small crash, uh, but then also you had 2008. Now you've got 2020. So it, it is roughly every 10 years you've got a crash, but each crash is bigger and, and better than the previous crash. And so eventually it's going to run out. They're, they're not going to be able to do it forever. The rest of the world is going to run out of money and, and we'll be, you know, It'll pump into here. We'll still be well, still have the capital investment at least, but uh, the the infrastructure. But the uh, the the dollar is going to eventually go away. I actually thought they were going to uh, try to spin off the dollar and create a digital currency, and uh, which was I think in one of the versions of that of that uh, relief bill. But um, it looks like they're not going to do that yet. But uh, I think somebody's going to soon. And and that Jim currency- Records has been taught was. Years ago, he wrote this uh, book, I think, The Death of Money, which was really interesting. Now, Jim Rickards is one of those guys, and Stockman falls into this a little bit, um, is sometimes like, you know, you can be right. Like, you can be right that gold is going to go to infinity or whatever the fuck it is, but when you keep actually making that claim and it's going to happen by X date and then X date, it doesn't happen, you become a little bit like the cult leader that, so Jim Rickards is kind of one of those guys I read only one of his books and it was fascinating. And in the macro, you're like, oh, this guy seems to know a ton about money and this is super interesting. But you you get obsessed and you watch too many news appearances where he says, 100% it's happening by this date and the only way you're going to avoid it is by buying this so that you're prepared. You start being like, all right, Jim Records. But he had this fascinating theory where he was saying that the IMF already issues the SDR, um, which is basically a currency between governments that they like lend to each other. Uh, and he was saying that, well, like, basically, they'll make current currencies useless. And that's when we're kind of headed towards the one world government type model where you have one. The next it's like the Federal Reserve for all Federal Reserves, where it all goes to the IMF and they start the entire system over with that new SDR currency. Um, and he was saying that, that that's what was coming next. End of the dollar. Yeah start of the IMF one currency because it already exists and it's already like the currency of governments, which was an interesting theory. Well, and I, and I think that that's actually that this is, and, and there is an opinion of like the statists or whatever, that this is what Bitcoin is basically, is basically given a golden, a golden calf basically to the, uh, the, the central bankers is that they won't have a cryptocurrency, but they'll have a digital currency and the digital currency will, basically be so that they can do QE, but instead of QE in this kind of rough scattershot way, they'll be able to do directed QE to specific individuals. And and that's what a digital currency will do. And they'll also be able to see all transactions across the entire currency network in real time. And uh, 
that's very, very interesting. They, they might be able to do that. I, I honestly, I don't think they can manage it still, but they, but that's very interesting. And that, and that, that's what I do think. I think that it's the federal reserve, the IMF or the Chinese central bank, possibly the Russian central bank will be the first one to come to this digital currency. And that digital currency will have the uh, first survivor advantage. Now, Bitcoin does have its own advantages as well. And I, and I, and you know, you had, I think you had Carl on the last episode, uh, and he, he's very uh, bullish on, on Bitcoin. And I do hold a lot of Bitcoin, so I, I, I would say I'm bullish on Bitcoin as well. I am a little bit more skeptical of it than, than like a lot of the Bitcoin maximalists. I think that uh, there are several things that could make it not useful. And, and actually, you brought up a point of this, uh, and, and I know that a lot, like a lot of the crypto guys are going to- Well, like, here's the, uh, the biggest one. <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the single biggest one. We're the, like, the, gov- the product of our government is currency. Like that's the real product of the U.S. government. What gives it all of its money is basically it's the dollar diplomacy, it's demand for the dollar, and it's infinite ability to basically uh, manipulate money and print money. That's that's the product of the U.S. government. You want to compete with the U.S. government on its core product, you're challenging the most, the, the biggest player in the room. So yeah. there's two things. One is they make your Bitcoin illegal to use or they confiscate it, and now all of a sudden like you're playing against them in that way. Or two is the biggest claim of Bitcoin is, hey, this thing is virtually unhackable because no one could possibly have the resources to develop what you would need in order, like, you know, the computing power to hack it. Well, that might be true of any single individual. It's probably not true of the U.S. government. Yeah. So if uh, you get to the yeah. point where we're really challenging the U.S. government to the point where, like, they're going to lose control over the money markets, which is the, the most important thing to them, the idea that the NSA won't sit down and figure out how to make Bitcoin fucking useless and crack the codes is also the idea that maybe Bitcoin isn't fucking CIA made in the first place or because there was there was that story of uh, Jim Rickards talks about that. I think that it's very like in his opinion, it's likely that Bitcoin was actually um, a government made thing. And part of that is because there's that perfect record of every transaction ever. So that idea that Bitcoin was like helping you kind of be anonymous is not that accurate. Uh, well, but that, that, I, I, mean, I threw yeah. a lot there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, for the anonymous thing, is it like, well, it's, it there is a record for it, but it's it's based off of IDs, and the IDs are not associated with anybody. So you can see which IDs and stuff like that made the transactions. But if it's not associated with you, how do they know who made it? It's just, yeah, you know, they can see the same ID did it over and over until they can tie you to that ID. And you can change that too. You can start, you can open a new wallet and have a different address and all that sort of stuff and transfer your Bitcoin to that. And, 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 and there is ways to do it, but like, yeah, that aside though, uh, my biggest fear for it. And, and I've gone through this with, with Rolo and, and, and I think it's, it's unlikely. Um, so in order for the government to basically take control of the chain and, and also, even if they took control of the chain, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. They would have to start up a, a network that is the same size as the current network. Or, or larger actually, and they would have to compute more links in the chain faster than the current network is computing them, and then they'd have to hook them back up. And if their chain is longer than the current chain, that would overwrite the current the current chain. But and with whatever edits they did to the chain, but the amount of computing power to do that is maybe they could do it. I don't know what the advantage would be because once they overrode it, it would just pick back up where it was. Maybe it would crash the value of it, but the but it was still be useful as far as a a, a cryptocurrency uh and if, they, if you now, hacked it though couldn't they then make changes where all of a sudden people's money was not like all of a sudden hey i got 
all of 3K in Bitcoin, and then it just shows up as 300,000, and then all of a sudden goes, oh, fuck, this Bitcoin thing's been hacked, and then everyone just wants out well, of it. Well, I mean, they could they could try to do that. It would, it would take an enormous amount of computing power to do it, and they would have to be doing that faster than the main network was already was computing more links. So, like, the, the deal with, like, Sounds if like there's a dis- fucking matrix, dude. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's very they, – they maybe could do it, but it's very, very complicated, and the cost-benefit, I think, is not there. So they probably wouldn't do it that way. What, what my biggest concern would be – and I think that there are people who have good arguments against this, but uh, I, I have to think about it more. My, my biggest concern would be that they, acu- they make taxes payable in Bitcoin, and they start accumulating Bitcoin. And then the problem with Bitcoin is that you can only have a certain amount of transactions on the the main layer. I think it's I don't know the exact number, twenty thousand or something like that. It's, it's purposely it's a, slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's purposely slow. So in order to do more transactions, like if you want to buy like a Coca Cola, like you're not going to do that on chain. You're going to do that on a secondary layer, and then that'll be committed to the chain later. But uh, and if there's a dispute, you'll handle that off chain because it's uh, you know. The it's equivalent a of a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, who cares? You know, you're, but if you're going to buy like the state of Alaska or something like that, that would be done on chain, <laughs> so so that it's it's done and confirmed, you know, in in real time. Uh, well, in as a transaction in that day. So that my biggest concern is that they would make taxes payable in Bitcoin, then they would accumulate a large amount of Bitcoin, and then they would issue a new digital currency that is backed by Bitcoin. And then they would continue to accumulate Bitcoin the same way that they've been accumulating gold. Now, a lot of people like this is again. I am not a Bitcoin expert like uh, Rollo McFlugel, who you may have interacted with on Twitter and um, Car Camp. But they both have different opinions of this. I see this as a real possibility because I think it, that Bitcoin functions largely as uh, largely the same way gold functions. And so here's like, this- why would you give up your keys? Why would you send that to the government? Why, why would you give gold to the government? Well, the government's been accumulating golds, gold for years and years and years. Why would you sell your gold to the government? People do it. Like it's, that's just, it, if, if the price is right, they can buy it and they control the price. You know, they, they control the fiat and the fiat is what you actually are transacting in the real world. It's just so. a totally theoretical. If the government, like one of the key val, one of the key things that gives, um, currency value is the fact that the u.s government accepts it and so you can pay your taxes in it so you're guaranteed that it's good somewhere right if you gave bitcoin the same like you know you gave that it that and then also if every time you were paying in bitcoin into the government it's essentially leaving the system so that would make all other bitcoin theoretically more value yeah more valuable now the question is do they do what they do which i think they do in gold um, and I don't track gold, so I'm really talking above my pay grade here, and I'm really talking in the world of conspiracy. I'm I'm willing to bet that governments do more gold transactions on the sell side than actual gold exists in the world in order to keep gold prices down. I think that like there's probably some amount of cahoots, especially from the U.S. government. Who knows how much they actually have in the Federal Reserve? But I think that they want to pretend like there's more supply of gold and less demand than there really is in order to, like, you know, keep currencies kind of in a certain place relative to gold. Like, they never want yeah. – like, if, if, if demand for gold really starts to spike, I think the government sell, steps in as a seller because they don't want it really going up in value unless yeah. – 
they all, in a coordinated way, stocked up on the amount that they need to kind of hedge their own currencies, in which case they're willing to let gold make a massive uh, reevaluation. But that's I, I, I'm yeah. talking about my pay grade. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think I think that, this is the other thing too. That this is a, another whole side tangent. We'll get back to like the whole Childerberg uh, community thing that I would, but. I do also think that one of the advantages gold has over Bitcoin is I think there's a genetic component to gold. Um, people, I think, on a genetic level value gold it, and and silver. Like when you when you like show like a kid who has no concept of money a penny that's shiny that's been shined up and a dime that's been shined up, and you say which one do you want? They want the penny because it looks like gold, or they, or they, in their their concept is that it's gold. And and I and I remember this distinctly talking to my niece and stuff and and other kids and stuff like that as being like, would you like a penny or would you like a dime? And if the, if it's shined up, they want the penny. And there's other there's anecdotal evidence of this in other areas as well. But I think there is a genetic component that people do value gold, uh, and Bitcoin is a different monster. And and it may end up the and to to really 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 not get people jumping down my throat about this is I do believe in Bitcoin. Like I own multiple thousands of dollars in Bitcoin. So um, I do believe, I, <laughs> I believe that Bitcoin will become money at some point. I don't know when. And I also think that gold does play a role in the future as well, because I do think there is a genetic component to valuing gold. Gold has been valued for all of human history and it's probably been valued since before human history. It's probably one of the first metals that ever was worked. It's a soft metal. It's easy to purify. It's shiny. And it is a status symbol that has existed for a long time. Dudes that have gold get fucked. If they have gold and they get fucked, they produce kids who like gold. That's going to end up making value in gold a genetic component. And, and Bitcoin right now doesn't have that. Gold also started as a commodity, whereas Bitcoin started as a collectible. And, and that's a, it's a different thing. It would be like if Pokemon cards had a finite, finite uh, amount and then somehow became money. That is what I see Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin has it built in that that's going to be, that the, the scarcity is the is part of it built in. But there's a lot of things that are scarce that are not worth anything. So that, that alone is not what makes it valuable. It's, it's, the, it's the ability to transact um, and the, the speed of All the right. transaction. Anyways, but th so let's that, move that away. aside... Let's move away from Bitcoin and uh, how do we go full scale cult, get a property yeah. with land that people will pay mm -hmm. us to be a part of and that we got safe harbor and a disaster cipher when shit goes down the next time. How do we really yeah, put so, this thing in action? So despite all my poo-pooing of Bitcoin, um, I do think that Bitcoin is the is the key to making this happen. So uh, I believe that what my ultimate goal for Childerberg is, is a crypto community. A community where people who own property in that community or timeshares uh, agree to transact on the Lightning Network, and uh, and that all transactions in that plot of land will be done on the Lightning Network, and uh, for a nominal fee when we hold events, you'll be able to reserve campsites or cabins, and that is the the first block in starting a community that operates exclusively on cryptocurrency, is that you. Well, we'll you'll sell you'll sell off these plots of land for for Bitcoin with part of the contract, and this is, involves smart contracts too, which can also be on on uh, on on the chain as on a different blockchain. But on we'll have the smart contracts do this as well. And part of the agreement is that you'll agree to transact on the Lightning Network, 
um, or, or something like that. Uh, we'll see what, what ends up working out. But that's, that's the idea is that uh, we get people who believe in this to agree to a certain set of rules to, to loosely to kind of something that exists in real life is an HOA. HOAs have a really bad rap, but in like an anarchist society, I think that HOAs would play a very vital role. It's people I don't who know what's live, an HOA. A homeowners association. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, so uh, for people who live in the suburbs, uh, HOAs are pretty common, and, and they're they're usually run by assholes, and they and it's usually like people who are like your lawn is not cut a quarter of an inch too short or whatever, and uh, or like your house is not painted the right color. That kind of stuff. But the thing is, is like if if buy when you buy into the property, it's clear in the contract what you're buying into. I don't see a problem with the HOA. I see a problem with the HOA making changes to the contract as it goes forward when you didn't agree to the changes. So I don't I don't think that a democracy is a good thing. You should adhere to the HOA that you purchased. And if there's a person in the neighborhood who's causing a problem that the rest of the community doesn't agree with, they should buy them out. And if the person refuses to sell, then the price is not high enough. They, if they really truly don't want their house painted, you know, pink polka dots or whatever, then they would be willing to offer a very very high premium to get that person out of the neighborhood and paint the house, you know, beige or whatever whatever color the HOA wants. Um, so in this idea is that you would purchase basically a a uh, plot of land that had a contract agreement on it. Uh, a, per, a, a certain percentage of transaction fees in this network would go to paying property tax so that we wouldn't have to worry about that because uh, there is property tax in almost all the states. I think actually all the states there's property tax. Some of them it's marginal. And uh, we would try our best to, over time, make this a, an event venue. And then as time goes on, we would all start moving there permanently, kind of like the Free State Project does now, uh, but in a place that's not like freezing cold in winter. So uh, I had chosen New Mexico, and the reason I chose New Mexico, uh, particularly Colfax County in New Mexico, was I am interested in wine. It's a, uh, a burgeoning wine region, uh, particularly to grow uh, varietals like Gewürztraminer, which is a German white wine varietal, uh, and um, uh, Gruner Veltliner, and these, these German varietals that respond well to, to continental temperatures. This is, a, this is an area that I was interested in moving to in myself. It also has really great hunting. It does have good farmland. Um, it is really great fishing. Uh, so I, my idea was that we I would purchase a large enough property that it could be the venue for Childeberg in the summer. And then I could, in the other the off season when it's not Childeberg, which I don't really imagine Childeberg will ever be longer than a week. Uh, right now, the first Childeberg was two days. This one is three days. Uh, I don't expect it to be any longer than that. Um, possibly a week. We'll see what happens. And uh, in the off season when it's not Childeberg, I would be able to rent out cabins to hunters and fishers. And so there would be an income stream. And then over time, as I build up capital, I can sell off plots of lands to other crypto enthusiasts who are interested in owning vacation property or timeshares. Uh, and then I can get a vineyard planted and have an operating winery and vineyard, which would be a tourist destination, which would also increase tourist dollars and people coming to it. And as part of that is you set up crypto ATMs. People can exchange their fiat for crypto. And that's how we would transact. It's just part of the community standards. And then we could keep out 
local government because it's a very rural county. There's very few there's very few uh, government officials in the county. It's a very sparsely po- populated county, uh, and if our population grew large enough, we'd have a, a greater influence over the local government. And ultimately, local government has a lot more impact on your life than federal government. In, in the city of New York, I think it's probably the same way. Is the city government really impacts your life a lot? Here, here in Dallas, Texas. Actually, I'm in Arlington, Texas, which is a city next to Dallas, Texas. So, like the the Arlington government affects my life way more than the state of Texas government does. And like, uh, if Arlington wasn't shut down, all the restaurants would be open. I'd be able to go to all, all these restaurants and get you know sushi or whatever whatever I wanted. But uh, regardless of whatever the state's recommendation is, so that that's kind of a that's kind of my idea is that you focus on a place that has a sparse population that has a weather that is um, more appealing to me because that's what I care about. Like I don't, I don't like the Northeast at all. Um, culturally, it's not my favorite thing. Uh, and, uh, climate wise, it's not my favorite thing. It's, it's humid in the summer. It's freezing in the winter, at least, at least in the Southeast, like in the, it's, uh, relatively warm in the, in the winter, it's like you know, it doesn't get freezing. Like yeah. in Virginia Beach, a, it snowed like twice. I like winter and I ski, so I might be able to get down with more, uh, with New Hampshire. I really got to look at uh, you know some farmable land costs. To me, the, the business model where I, I think like where you're hitting on it is you become an insurance policy where people are guaranteed that they can come there if things go to shit. You make mm-hmm. investments off of like. Um, in the meantime, you try and get someone who's farming there who maybe they keep all the profits for the farming, but if things sure. go to shit, yeah. then you have a working farm there. Um, but as you raise capital, you try and invest in like, you know, medical supplies. You try and invest in, hey, I've got X amount of like as the money comes in, you kind of keep making those investments and then yeah. you throw the events there and it's the timeshare or it's all these other things that you try and keep it so like you can keep investing in it. But at the end of the day, what people are really buying into is that if things go to shit, they've got this place. Now here's some, here's something crazy. Independent of all this, I had a fan of my show hit me up the other day and he goes, Hey, I've got this giant farm of land. Uh, you want to go into business with me? We'll start selling puts that like, will be an annual contract that if things go to shit this year, you can come live on my farm. And I was like, you know, it's crazy that you're bringing that to me because I was just talking to the tasting anarchy guys about putting this together. I hadn't quite thought of it in terms of like short term contracts is actually really interesting because potentially I I know for my it's almost like it's the difference between selling whole life insurance and uh, short term insurance. Yeah, yeah. uh, I I actually I trade options. That's that's the only reason I didn't lose any money this last month. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's why. That's the only reason. No, because it's almost. It's almost easier to sell someone on, hey, for 2009 to 2010, it's a thousand dollars. You get yeah. like, there's nothing other than you have this address, and you're, we have guns. You're not getting in here unless you paid your dues. Or at that point, you're going to have to have something of value, which is based on your wife's vagina, and you don't want to have to trade your wife's vagina. So make sure you pay your dues by this date. And then, you know, things go to shit. You're able to get here. And you, like, it becomes a, like, I, I don't think we'd have the math on it perfect at first, but you could probably price out what that option, you know, what that option is worth yeah. to have access for, you know, for this full year if things go to shit. Like, and then also part of the calculation is, well, can I get to that location? How much of a drive is it? You know what I mean? There's things to consider, but it, it is a doable. It, it's almost surprising to me that that's not a financial product that exists right now that, yeah. The same as fucking life insurance. I have my disaster site insurance. 
Right. Well, and yeah, I, I, that's it. And I think people individually do this. Like my, my uncle Mike, he owns like 1600 acres out in California and it's a, it's a bunker. It's, it's for if, uh, like he's way worse than I am when it comes to like conspiracy stuff. And like, he's just like, Oh yeah, they're out there. They're getting, you know, they're, they're shooting 5g at us and making us infertile and all that kind of stuff. So okay. he's wait, got- wait. before you move on, 5G. I haven't looked into this rumor one little bit. Not one little thing. The second it came out, I was just like, "That one sounds nutty." Yeah. Any well, tr- I don't. I don't know. I haven't looked into it that much either. But like, uh, you know, Monica Perez. Uh, she yeah. does. Uh, she's been talking about it a, a bunch, and I haven't looked into it yet. But I was like, as, as the more she talks about it, the more I'm like, maybe there is something to this. <laughs> I don't know, but. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those weird things is that, and you know what, the thing is, like, there is uh, something to be said. I mean, like, I sit in front of a computer all day long. Like I said, I'm a software developer. I sit in front of the computer. And at the end of the day, a lot of times if I don't get up and, like, get away from the computer screens, I feel like shit. And I think it's because you're just, all of this, like, computer, like, the monitor energy or whatever is, like, shooting into your face. And... Uh, it tire it makes your eyes tire for sure. That's why they make those gunner goggles and stuff. And uh, you also start losing contact with like the world. It, it it's weird. Like I I hate I hate when I'm like sit when I get like real fixed on a problem or something like that. And I'm on the computer for like ten hours straight, and then like, I wake up from it, and I'm like, holy shit! It's it's eight o'clock at night. I've been on the computer right. since six six a.m. this morning, like working on this program or whatever. You know, like figuring this this out and like. I haven't gotten up all day long and it feels weird. So like there is something like anecdotally, there's something to that where it's like, yeah, there is all this energy kind of like shooting around everywhere. And I don't know what 5g is exactly. I have, like I said, I haven't looked into it, but like from like an anecdotal, like it makes sense to me kind of like, it's like, okay, well that kind of makes sense that they're shooting all this high energy. But then again, like you remember like in like the late nineties, early two thousands when they were saying that like, talking on your cell phone was like giving you brain cancer and stuff. And that, that didn't turn out to be true. So, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but like, according to a lot of the stuff that's going around is that like, as this, as this, uh, quarantine is happening, they're like throwing up 5g all over the place during it. And like, that's, that's kind of odd whether that's true or not. That's another story. But if it does end up being true, it's like, why are they throwing it up now and not like, why weren't they doing it at a different time? Are they doing it only because freedom of speech is suspended or are they doing it because, you know, the work order continues and they were going to do it anyways. So, so there is a lot of 5g going up right now. That's what, that's the reports. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what everybody's saying. And apparently they're putting like, according to like a lot of the, the hysteria articles and stuff like that, that I see it's going up on like uh, public schools and things like that. So we'll see. And, And then there's, one of the big rumors that is going around, and I don't, again, I don't know if this is true. This sounds kind of far-fetched to me. Although, uh, world world uh, productivity, like uh, reproduction rates have been going down for several years. So maybe there is something going on with that. But uh, I think it's mostly just due to uh, increased standard of living. In, increased standard of living usually drops uh, productivity, like reproduction rates. Um, and porn. But, yeah, porn probably plays a factor into it too. It, well, and also, and that's part of pro- prosperity is that if you have access to the internet, like, and you're going to watch porn, like, you know, yeah. why have kids? Like, or you why fuck? Fill, you got socks to fill up. What are you doing? 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that, like, the average fertility rate of women has been going down steadily for the last 20 years. That could be from a lot of different reasons, but uh, that, that is one thing. Is that I think, actually, I think if you look at the statistics, there's only, like, four countries that are considered modern countries that actually have a positive reproduction rate. Uh, and, and that's part of the rumor that's going around about 5G is that it, it does um, damage reproduction rate of women. And it's same thing with vaccines. That's one of the things that they're saying too. And the thing is, I get vaccinated. I get my flu vaccine every. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not an anti-vax or anything. I'll, I'll, my family. I, I'm one of five. My four sisters are all kind of kooky anti-vaxxers. I still get my vaccines because I trust my doctor, and I've, I've got a good relationship with my doctor. Um, if it does turn out that it's killing my balls somehow, then like you know, oh well, I won't have kids, and that that really sucks. I'd love to have kids, but. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what this is all happening. I think in order to keep all of this stuff really secret, it would take a lot of effort. But on the other side, like maybe they're not keeping it secret, and the people that are learning about it are like Alex Jones, and nobody believes him. So, you know, well, well I don't, I don't know. That, that's that's kind of a weird thing. But regardless of all what we don't know, what we don't know, what we don't know, what we do know, what we absolutely know is that the economic model that's happening right now is not sustainable, and that. Part of the point of Childerberg was for people to build a community offline, is make contacts with people who are like-minded to one degree or another. I mean, there's a lot of people who came to Childerberg, all anarchists uh, or minarchists in one way or the other. We may not all agree, and we may be right or left anarchists, we may be of different schools, but we all got along, we got to talk to each other, we got to meet each other. It, it's weird in real life because when, you, when I go out in real life and I go talk to like normies at my work and stuff like that, like my team is six people at work none of them are anarchists none of them know what i'm talking about when i'm when i'm telling them this stuff it now granted i love all of them they're really great people but they don't understand what i'm saying in if you truly believe in these anarchist principles and you truly believe that the government is going to get you and 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 on those same lines that the, that the current economy is unsustainable this fiat currency is inflationary uh it's built on a lie and it's all faith-based right now, and eventually that's going to burst. They'll they'll maybe be able to reinflate the bubble this time. They may be able to reinflate the bubble next time, but at some point they're not going to be anymore. You owe it to yourself, and you owe it to your family to have a backup plan. And if you're the only one in your family of your all your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and all the sort that have a backup plan, you still owe it to your family to make sure that you're set and that you can help accommodate them. And that's kind of my vision for Childerberg Town is that we've got it set up. It's growing enough food on its own. It may not be food that everybody wants, but we've got elk, we've got cattle, we've got uh, rabbits, that sort of stuff that you can hunt. Um, we've got there's actually goats there and stuff that you can hunt. There's great fishing there. Uh, we'll we'll portion out the land accordingly based off of supply and demand and on on the blockchain so that the contract is there in perpetuity. In perpetuity, I don't know. How to say it's a tough word. Perpetuity. Yeah perpetuity on the blockchain so that everybody knows that as long as those nodes are being run, you own that parcel or you own the timeshare for that, for that amount of time. Uh, that's there. It's, it's solid. The nodes are being run. And if hit, if uh, shit hits the fan, you've got a place to go. You just got to get to Colfax County, New Mexico, which, you know, all roads lead to Colfax County, New Mexico. And, uh, you can get there thanks to this highly, highly indebted interstate highway system that is unsustainable as well. I, this is the thing, you know, do you ever listen, um, 
there's two podcasts I would really recommend people listen to. One of them, Car Camp had actually recommended to me. It's called Strong Towns. And it's it's really interesting. It's from Civil Engineer, which, you know, Car is also a civil engineer. But he's talking about basically, like, uh, how towns really organically form and what they form around. And it's and ultimately, it's around security and, and security for future generations. The other one that I really like is called uh, the Custercast. Uh, and I think about, people are pretty... donuts. <laughs> uh, the Custler cast. So he's at, he lives, I think in upstate New York, actually, or maybe Vermont. He might live in Vermont. Um, and uh, he's got a similar thing. He makes a really great case for how the entire model, like I live in the suburbs hit the, the, the case that he makes is that the suburbs was one of the worst financial decisions the federal government ever made. And they pumped in all of this debt to build the interstate highway system. And there's no way to maintain the interstate highway system without massive amounts of debt over long periods of time. That's interesting. And it, yeah. And as soon as that collapses, the suburbs are going to have to vacate and, and people are going to have to move because back and they're not, small town. Yeah, they're not financially viable. That's, that's right. fascinating. All right. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's call it there. This was a lot of fun. We'll uh, okay. hopefully keep, you know, keep smoking weed at night and figuring out how we can uh, get our plot of land for uh, disaster <laughs> right. site survival. Also, yeah. I appreciate that you booked me for uh, for Childerberg. Um, yeah. We'll see. We'll see what's going on. I mean, it's still almost two months away. So who yeah. the hell knows? Yeah. It could. Uh, yeah, so, and yeah, I'm game for a road trip, man. So who the fuck knows? Maybe I'll drive down to Texas, or maybe I'll still be in my house. Uh, but if well, not, of, I'm definitely. Of- yeah. yeah. As of now, that flight's not canceled. So if if the flight's still good and you're willing to come out. We'll love to have you. I, I've still got the truck rented. We've got a PA system. You know, you'll be able All to right. do it. And, and a lot of people are still coming. Like nobody, nobody's canceled yet. So we'll we'll see what happens. All right, we're, we'll see what's going on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. Absolutely. Take it easy, man. All right, I'm calling it there. <laughs> Later, man. All right, bye.